Welcome to the Professional Services Pursuit, a podcast featuring expert advice and insights on the professional services industry. I think most of us will agree it's been a challenging year. We hope all of you out there have enjoyed the podcast and have gleaned some value from hearing how our guests are dealing with challenges, the insights they provided, and maybe have even extracted some tangible tips that you've been able to implement at your business. In our final episode of 2023, episode 57, we went back and pulled some clips that I think offer some great advice for PS leaders on how to best run projects, manage their resources, and forecast better. Always a popular topic. Enjoy three clips from episode 33 with Mark LaCroix, episode 40 with Shane Anastasi, and episode 42 with Peter Taylor. Happy holidays from Cantata. How is it that you guide companies, embedded service organizations, to start becoming more profit-centric, to start becoming more consulting-oriented customer facing and impacting type of an organization. Yeah, and it's funny, other than the true original intention of the organizations, whether it's embedded or it's a pure play consulting, you can kind of adjust what your primary objective is depending on which of those that you are. But once you get into the customer facing project, it all pretty much becomes the same. And the role that we try to get those teams to adopt is what we would kind of create a persona around it, but it's called the Project Sherpa. And the general idea is that you are the paid guide leading the customer through a dangerous environment to achieve the best possible outcome that you and they can achieve given the environment around you. And, you know, there's a lot of qualifiers in there, but we have to really understand what a project is to be able to lead the journey successfully. And one of the things that we tend to focus on in the industry, which is a complete incorrect way to look at it, is that we focus on things like making sure that we're on time, on budget, on scope. That's a distraction. We focus on things like customer satisfaction. And one of the real values of project consulting or project delivery is not getting the customer to love you during the journey. It's getting the customer to love you after the journey is over. And that's what the focus needs to be. And you don't get that outcome if what you're doing during the journey is trying to pamper them or to not tell them the truth or to make them happy because they want something and you know, you're just going to give it to them for free. You make them happy by leaving them with an outcome that they see as value for money. And so what we focus on is we feel that in the industry, people are really in a passive mode when they execute projects. They go to the customer, they take the SOW from sales, they go to the customer and they say, what do you want us to do? Sales said we're going to do this, so let's just start doing that. And so all of a sudden the customer comes back maybe towards the end of the project and we realize we're completely misaligned. Well, these misalignments could easily have been identified earlier if we had hit the project running as leaders and said, why do you want to do this? Wouldn't it be better if you did that? 
Help me understand where this plays as a role in your business process and why it's important to you. Why do you think that this is a key to your competitive advantage? And maybe what we should be using is the out-of-the-box product functionality because it's going to be more stable and better for you in the long run. We just don't tend to want to challenge things as we go through projects, mainly because we feel like we're not supported. But like I said before, I don't think it's other departments not supporting us. It's us not standing or being confident enough to say this is the way we recommend that you should do it. Yeah, and I think you emphasize outcomes repeatedly through what you just talked about, which is a critical part, right? Understanding the desired outcomes longer term during the implementation as you're executing your services is going to ensure that the output or the deliverables are in conjunction and on path to getting to those outcomes. So how do you consult if you have any specific examples of this, of your clients to actually do that effectively, right? Have that communication line to the clients, to the project to clearly identify, document and make sure everyone is aligned on the desired long-term outcomes and therefore then start tailoring the project delivery to get to that outcome. Yeah, down at the project level, it's very important that we do a couple of things. One is to not get blindsided by the concept of project management. And one of the things that we do as Pierce Principles is we train the entire organization. And we do that because projects are made up of members and there's only one project manager and that person can only see so much of what's happening in the project. And the scope creep that we find in projects isn't always happening at the project manager level. Maybe it's happening with the architects. Maybe it's happening with the testers. Maybe it's happening with the business analysts. It happens all over the place. And if we don't have a common way of looking at projects to understand what it is that we're doing on projects, the importance of baseline control, the importance of making sure that we don't just say yes to things because the customer pulls us aside in the meeting and puts pressure on us all of a sudden to do things that we shouldn't, The general idea is that the team has to manage the project. You know, we say it takes a village to raise a child. It takes an entire project team to implement a project successfully. And so that's the view that we take of that, break that mindset that it's one single person's responsibility within our project team to make this project work. It's actually all of our responsibilities to do it. That's the first thing that we do to kind of broaden it out. The second thing that we do, though, is that we focus on this concept of empowerment and disempowerment. And the general idea of that is that there's this kind of weird misunderstanding that we have about how project management works. And what I mean by that is that project managers seem to adopt the role of owning the project. And the problem that we've got is that project managers, as they work for customer-facing projects, don't actually have the authority to change the project's constraints. They can't just change the constraints. What they have to do is escalate. But when they do escalate, what happens is people get annoyed. Oh, why am I dealing with another escalation? And so one of the things that happens is as they escalate and as people get annoyed with escalations, the project managers begin to think, well, why bother escalating? And so now what we have is a lack of communication. So what we work on is embracing the idea of escalation. We want to escalate. We want to escalate proactively. One of the things that we teach our organizations at the manager and sponsor level is to ask for escalations. Why have I not received any escalations? Why are you not escalating anything to me? I'm sure there's something that we need to be talking about. And then that walks into the idea of really consistent and somewhat regimented 
sponsor management that doesn't occur enough on projects. And to me, if you had to change one thing today to make projects more successful, it's to elevate and become rigid in your sponsor management. And I mean really rigid, down to the point that you understand that project managers don't own projects. Project sponsors own projects because they're the ones that sign the contracts. They're the ones that set the constraints. Inside of the customer environment, the project sponsor is the only person who truly knows what done is going to look like. They're the only one that has the vision of this project in its completed state because that's the person that made the promise to the organization about what this project would do. Inside your own organization, the service provider's organization, you're the person that owns the P&L that this project reports into. And so you have to own and understand where this project is going to finish and you have to help the project management team discuss with the client the issues required to change the constraints on the project. Let's start by talking a little bit about how the future of AI is driving the industry. What impact do you think it's going to have on project management? Yes, I think it's always hard to predict the future, but I think there's a lot of big declarative statements out there. And the one that triggered for me was the Gartner statement that by 2030, 80% of what project managers do today will be done by AI. And that's kind of, whoa, really? I mean, what does that mean for the industry? That, That started my investigation if you like my learning i'm not an ai expert you know i kind of read a lot and i attended what presentations i could out there and did the whole google world as well and i recognize that actually it is going to bring about a change it is going to bring about a shift in the project management world and i think my gut feel for it's it's positive and i've run several sessions on this around the world and i typically run polls for people and people are generally open-minded about it they might have some concerns but they're kind of thinking this could be good and and for me i think the biggest impact it's going to have which is why i kind of touched on the uh, team analytics and that kind of thing as well is that it's going to free up project managers from that and here i'll be a little bit yeah quiet here at this it's, it's going to free us up from all that boring stuff that we didn't like doing yeah. in the first place and it's going to allow us to focus on people and that's an amazing thing that's the high level view anyway yeah and and focusing on people and client service right so again ultimately the client experience could be improved only with this movement so that's the hope i mean i think it, you know if you've got project managers have got so busy these days that you know, that's a battle is to deal with all of their stakeholders in an appropriate and solid exactly. way, I think. And because there's a lot of pressures on, on getting things done and they're working with virtual teams and virtual clients and they're working in high pressure situations and they're running teams around the world and all of that. And the demand for delivery is more and more and more and faster, faster, faster. I think actually this is a brilliant time when some real significant help through AI is going to be an incredibly positive and I think most project managers would truly welcome it. Part of I think what everyone is struggling with Peter is determining what is the proper and and the right application and what is Mm -hmm. not of AI right and so what are your thoughts in the context of project management and service delivery in terms of what are some of the right applications and what are some that are not? So we kind of have to step back I mean it's a huge subject that's the the biggest thing I found you know and I'm only talking about one element of AI here I mean there's the sort of narrow AI world but even that can be broken down you know we've got 
process automation, we've got chatbots, we've got machine learning, and then we've got the autonomous project manager. We don't need people anymore. This is the world of Terminator that people are fearing of. But process automation has been around for quite a while. It's about streamlining process and, and making it effective and accurate and helpful in that way. Chatbots, most of us know, if you've ever bought anything from Amazon had a problem then your chances are you have not spoken to a human you've dealt with a chatbot and in my own personal experience successfully the clever stuff comes in the world of machine learning this is where the AI is really beginning to understand the data and what that data is predicting and that's really where the big leap forward is going to come and autonomous project management that's really a thing of science fiction future at this point in time so your question about where can it help I think it can definitely help this broke it this way. We're human and we have to track stuff. We have to register stuff. We have to make decisions based on it. And we have good days and we have bad days and we get tired and we get overwhelmed, etc. But AI is truly never tiring and completely objective and can be constantly scanning data, looking ahead for problems, challenges, issues, and so forth. And that's something that I think in the world of professional services and project delivery, that partner in the background just looking out for you and i think that's a weird way of saying it perhaps because it's not real it's not human but effectively that's what ai will be doing it will be constantly tracking things and offering up guidance and advice i think for me that's where the really big step forward is going to come from one of the trends was talking about predictive analytics and Mm -hmm. i think ai is a big enabler and it's going to empower leading indicators and predictive analytics so that you can get ahead of things instead of being reactive so i love that angle it's the same principle for the team analytics i was talking about is that you know we do reviews we do retrospectives we do feedback loops all the rest of it but it's it's all lagging whereas you know the kind of Team analytics, looking in the moment, pulse checks, etc. That it's really going to be far more valuable and offer up that kind of short future view. Yeah, exactly. These are the types of hey, this type of a project. The last ten projects of this type have faced mm. this kind of a pro- uh, risk, and these are the steps you can take to mitigate, which is going to empower the project manager to actually get in front of things and make sure that there is a great customer experience. So yeah, no, totally. I know. I think it's all very exciting. So what do you think then on PMs and PMO teams? How do you think they need to evolve their skill sets to be prepared for this change, to capitalize on it, and to make sure that ultimately it does lead to high performance as PM, PMO team, but also great experience? Yeah, I think the first thing, every project manager, I think you should be learning about this stuff. And it's about engaging. It's about thinking about it. It's about trialing it out. I mean, my OPMO is doing this right now. I've kind of raised the topic amongst my team and we're trialing a number of elements of AI in our own world to try and demonstrate value, but also to give us understanding. So we haven't made a giant leap forward as yet, but we're using a lot of niche little tech pieces of technology that are AI-driven to try and make the life of the project managers I you know, have within the PMO to track the work that we're doing around the world because we're overseeing thousands of projects at any given time. So and I think that's the first thing is, yeah, don't hide. Don't hide from it. <laughs> Resistance is futile. It's a more <laughs> negative word for that. But embrace it. Learn about it. It's not going to take over tomorrow, but it's going to certainly come at you in, a, in a, a year or two's time. So the more you understand, the better that you are going to be able to deal with that. So I think that's the biggest piece of advice is go out there and see what there is, learn about it, trial it, test it out, 
find the value. Yeah, no, that's great. It's happening whether you like it or not. We've discussed skills forecasting as a very important component. We know it's a particular problem area with only 31% of organizations saying they have this capability. We know that client demands are changing faster than ever, and we're required to be responsive to the needs of our clients and being able to understand the skills needed to service the clients and being able to position those skills at the right time for the right project is critical to ensuring both client and and our colleague satisfaction. So why do you think it's so challenging for a lot of companies to be able to properly forecast skills? And obviously that inhibits their ability to make sure that every single time they're positioning the right skill set for the right activity. Well, I've definitely seen over the, the, say, three to four years more attention has gone into skills databases and design and implementation than ever before. In fact, I've helped clients with exclusive skills inventory projects only uh, because it's that big and that important. So they're not simple to simply deploy, but once they do, they're pretty straightforward and intuitive in terms of their value. Now, why is this continue to be a challenge? The first thing is, is that think that the step that folks are taking now is to get the skills database in place and try to at least understand what do we have and what are the dimensions of what we have. But now, how are you using that in a use case? Uh, We like to think we want to use it to make smart staffing decisions, but you bring up forecasting and looking out into the future. And if you have a good skills database, then you could do what I'll call more ad hoc forecasting to say, what if analysis and scenarios to say, hey, if I was to sell five more of these projects, do I have enough of the right skills to do it? And that would be an example of ad hoc. The real goal is to tie it to more of the sales process as well. So you can get that future forecast look in to say, if this opportunity or these sets of opportunities are in our pipeline, what will that mean in terms of my skills and ability to staff them in the future? So that's a more complex thing. And what people have to realize is that skills and capabilities are a many-to-many and a one-to-many. So I have many skills, so that's one-to-many. And Anu, we might share some of the same skills, right, and an overlap. And so in that case, it's hard to say, how many people do I have with this one skill to do this job? Sometimes we have to actually abstract some skills into some major disciplines and things like that to really filter out for capacity planning purposes. But nonetheless, we need that good skills data in there so we can do some of the ad hoc planning. The other thing is to be successful sometimes in translating what's being sold. Typically, you know, we're not defining a bunch of skills and data in the sales and CRM platform, right? We don't expect salespeople to do that. So you have to look at your overall process and say, who are the, what I call the data intermediaries? Who is translating that new implementation project or that new project into what really are the resource requirements? And people avoid that translation, and sometimes they wait until the project's sold and and ready to start being staffed when they could have started doing that a lot earlier in the process. And so 
One of the things I think to address this again is, yes, build your skills database, but again, use data intermediaries or technology to really develop what are those skills needed up front while it's still in the sales cycle so you can effectively forecast and plan ahead for being able to meet the needs of what's in the pipeline. Because I think that leads to the ATS and identifying any gaps, skill gaps you have. And if you do it early enough, it actually positions you to be able to recruit potentially appropriately for the project and, and be ready to start as soon as you need to for the project. Whereas now tell the client, it's going to be another couple of months because I've got some gaps in what I, you know, providing the right skill to the project. So it seems critical. Now, going back to the skills, I know you talked about the work that you do on the skills database. What are some of the typical opportunities that you see when people are setting up things that people don't get right that you advise them to direct? I heard you just say about categorization, right? I mean, it's not a flat list of skills, but how you categorize that allows you to understand and forecast better and understand your gaps better and all of that. Can you just share with the audience, what do you think are some of the do's and don'ts in maintaining an effective skills database? Yeah. And I like the do's and don'ts. I can think of a couple do's and a couple don'ts. So a do would be, it does require a broad collaboration with the delivery leaders who know the business. So I'll call them a practice leader or a delivery manager or people that represent some of the different either tools, technologies, or delivery areas that you're in. They all need to be engaged to contribute to what goes in there. And the other do or do not, I guess it could be, is simplicity is better, certainly, and start smaller and grow. I think people overcook their skills taxonomies a bit and try to get down to the version level of the product technology. of the. And it's like, uh, you have to come back up and apply use cases to say, how am I going to use this data? And how much is enough to make an informed decision or to contribute to my analysis that I'm doing? So there is a size and it's kind of correlated not to how many people you have. It's correlated to how broad of an offering, how, how many different services and technologies you work with. I helped a customer that had was very acquisitive, had 50 different software technologies. That makes for a little bit bigger sales data. But if you're a single product implementer, you should have a skills database that's under 200, quite simply, because there's not enough. And again, keep in mind, don't let HR creep in here. This is a skills to do work database. This isn't about career development. This isn't about behavioral type things. This is about, do you have the skills to do the role that we're going to assign you to do? And so that's another way to kind of bound your your skills database to keep that as its scope. And again, as I mentioned, if there are disciplines or major practice areas, you may have to tease those out into a binary of, I either know supply chain or I don't kind of thing. And so if you want to go and capacity plan based on a broad skill set, then I know how many supply chain people that I have and can better segment them to do my forecasting and planning. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know by giving the show a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform and leaving a comment. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, you can do so anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And to learn more about the power of Cantata's purpose-built technology, go to cantata.com. Thanks again for listening.